Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. It has begun. Hello and welcome to episode 44, and I am happy for three reasons today. One, we're going to be talking about the prospect of bringing in a new Washington Treaty, because Jamie Seadell, our wonderful gentleman from Armoured Carriers, have found an article which suggested it. Two, we're going to be talking about the Defence Command paper because we talked about the British ISDR and we talked about how that, that integrated view, all the lovely words and ideas it brought up. Now we're going to see what the actual paper that's supposed to turn that into a defence mission looks like. And three, and this is the most important one, this is my last turn for a couple of weeks, actually doing the introduction. After this point, Drac has to think it up for the next two weeks. So he has 45 and 46, which mm. I was going to be completely out of stuff to start off with. So, you know, there are small victories and there are joys. <laughs> so, as usual, it's just the three of us from Bilge Pumps. It's just the regular three. Uh, we did in try and invite a guest for this because we thought it'd be good to have one. Unfortunately... Interesting enough, Andrew Boyd said he was unfortunately busy today. It is We are recording on Easter Friday, so we can't really blame him being busy. But uh, what he did say was he would love to join us again at some point in the future if we have another topic which is um, which he might be relevant on. And so I'm sure we can think of something for that. We also did our usual invitation to a specific person, and they were again busy as well. So, you know, I think we're now up to inviting that person about 10 times, and every time something comes up, uh, it's just terrible. Anyway, for us. So, what a new Washington treaty. Jamie, you suggested this. You put this article forward. You oh, well, get to no. start off before me and Drac probably tear it to pieces. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, the, the thing is, is, you know, people keep comparing now to the 1930s. Um, so what was the situation then? We had a situation where you had a great power that had reached its peak, a.k.a. United Kingdom. You had these, um, you know, uh, rising um, powers nipping at your feet, <clears throat> yapping away on the on the fringes of the empire, be it the United States and Japan. Um, and um, what did you do? You rolled out the diplomats, and um, we would in a few treaties. So this was all an attempt to maintain the status quo. Um, you know whether or not it worked or not is another matter, but the fact is that you still managed to get so many of the uh, diverse interest groups involved around the same table and talking and at least verbally agree to various um, arrangements. So given that we've now got you know China rolling out 25 ships a year, 25 warships a year, um, the shall we say um, archaic state of a large portion of um, the, the Western world's um, fleets. Um, is it time to um, you know, deploy some soft power, diplomatic power? Or is, is it just simply not viable in the face of the Wolf Warrior? Frankly, the Wolf Warrior seems a bit of a 
idiot to me. Sorry, this is going to sound terrible, but uh, the reason I'm saying that is because if anyone has anyone seen the Republic, uh, the uh, Embassy of China to the Republic of Ireland's post on Twitter recently, uh, where they were using Asop's fable, and they were then they said, "We uh, remember China is um, China is a wolf," and they hadn't read obviously where the wolf keeps accusing the little sheep of being the aggressor, aggressor, aggressor until it attacks it. And it's a case of... Uh, I don't think you quite understood that fable when you're making that tweet. Anyway, yes. um, I think there are two problems with that. Um, judging by China's recent appearance in the United States for that arrangement in Alaska, myself, if they were apparently being quite loud and quite rude to each other, uh, and very, very, uh, very long introduction speeches. Myself, if I'd been the Chinese, I'd, the first thing I'd have been complaining is, why the hell, uh, why have you brought me to this freezing cold place? Um, pretty, pretty to keep the tempers down. It didn't work. Uh, <laughs> or it did, and it could have been so much worse. <laughs> we, we, we'll never know. Um, but... Usually my experiences with diplomats is if you really want to get something agreed, you need to be supplying copious amounts of alcohol and a place where they forget their cares and worries, i.e. somewhere which doesn't have good internet access. Um, Alaska. Uh, uh, I'm not sure Alaska. I think Alaska does have okay internet access. Um, but no, the trouble is, at the end of World War One. All sides had fairly modern fleets, so they were prepared to take a building holiday, they were prepared to stop because they all had ships of roughly the same generation. No one would feel they were outpaced. The trouble is with China building 25 ships a year is I'm not sure if Western nations or America would feel that, you know, they were in an equivalent place. If you consider the average age of the Royal Navy fleet, well... Yeah, yes, we've just started building Type 26s and Type 31s. They're just about to sort of start building. That's great. But that's because the Type 23s are long past the point at which they should have been replaced. Type 23s were supposed to do, I think it was 20 years service maximum. And the last one entered service in the 1990s. The last one is actually going to leave service probably closer to 2030. So they're going to have ended up doing roughly 40 years service. That is not good. Those ships are old. Those ships have had to be practically be rebuilt in everything but name to keep them going. As you will remember from many Bilge Pumps episodes and various other things, I often joke about how it used to be when they were first built. You could tell this how new they were because how much the, the, the hull had indented onto their framing. Now they've actually had to have the hull replaced with thicker steel. Lovely. That's good. You can no longer tell their age. But the fact that someone had to do that because the cheap frigate, which was supposed to be in the service for 20 years before they built another cheap frigate, before they built another cheap frigate, has been in service for so long, it actually became cost effective to re-hull the ships. Mm. So, yeah, well, I mean, it goes to demonstrate the, the failure of the, you know, the lowest bidder option, I suppose. 
but or you know, it's I mean, the failure. I don't think Britain ever goes for the lowest bidder. It's usually just what's BAE supplying. But I think probably in the case of Britain and a lot of the countries, it's a fa- it's a thing of the Cold War is over. There's going to be no more wars. Mm. And the thing is, that's a failure of history because after World War One, they said there's going to be no more wars. After World War Two, there was going to be no more wars. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's okay. So, what about the trading power? So, how about you know? I, I think your um, uh, defense paper mentions a new cruiser of some kind. How much trading power would that give? <laughs> well, this this is one of the things I I've been pondering this since we floated it as a topic for discussion, and I think. We, th- there's there's kind of two there's two separate but equally intractable problems when it comes to a new Washington treaty. I mean, obviously, we don't necessarily it's not is well, it's definitely not going to be exactly the same nations, exactly the same ratios. But the, let's be honest, the main purpose of the Washington Treaty was to equalize the balance between two navies that otherwise might very well have ended up in a ruinously expensive naval arms race, which might then have led to war, which at the time was Britain and the US, as well as Mm. the US trying to keep the Japanese from expanding to a point where the Anglo-Japanese alliance would have a massive and marked superiority over the US Navy. So although the, the the labels might have changed i think the overall strategic consideration probably hasn't in as much as from the american perspective the us doesn't want the chinese navy to get bigger than it um and whilst certain people probably love the idea of all the money being spent on warships there are probably plenty of other people who'd rather be spending the money on something else rather than getting in a massive naval arms race mm. And at the same time, China is probably looking at the whole situation, I would imagine, and thinking similar to how America was thinking about the Anglo-Japanese alliance. If they were invited to this kind of conference, one of their main objectives would be to ensure that any likely combination of allied navies isn't strong enough to overcome their home turf advantage in a in a conflict in the Western Pacific. So effectively, you've, put, you've substituted the UK and US with Japan as the second tier with the US and China being the ones who'd argue out the top tier and then it would be and then it's really up a little bit up in the air as to whether you have one sort of second tier or whether you have multiple well would India out. accept being anything less than second tier yeah well this thing you've would got Russia in- accept to be anything less than first tier were, well, Russia can't afford to be first here, let's be honest. They, and I think the Russians know that. They can't afford the numbers of subs and destroyers and cruisers and carriers that China or the US can. But then this this is this, I mean, it's similar to the discussion we've had before about what constitutes different navies at different levels. And, um, and the thing you have to remember is what we haven't got is the British had the simple calculation with the Washington Treaty. Why has Jamie left? I have no idea. He froze up. Uh, now you're back now. Hmm. Well, Jamie, uh, ba- uh, I'm not sure where Jamie's gone. Um, hopefully, he would come back in a second. The wonders of editing. <laughs> yeah, this um, never happened. And but you have to remember one of the uh, the calculations the British did 
in the Washington Treaty was they looked at the US Congress and thought, you lot are never going to fund the US Navy to take us on if there's a treaty. You are never going, you're going, if there's a set, if there's a competition and, you know, you can build a Navy second to none, you might fund that because that'll get the American competition blood racing. But if you, if there's a treaty and they were right, let's be honest, the US Navy up until 1940, nowhere near the Royal Navy has more tonnage of destroyers it has more tonnage of cruisers yes the u.s navy has the same number of battleships and all that that sort of thing but that doesn't really bother the royal navy because they have more of everything else mm. and this is the thing i don't think uh, uh, again this is the trouble would america really want china having equality with it in terms of firepower because China could concentrate everything in the Pacific. The Americans can't. For the, Ameri for the starters, the Americans have two ocean borders. Well, yeah, this is, but this is the problem is that China is, China is building num vast numbers of ships at every level of surface warfare capability with the exception of carriers. And that there's there's also building a lot of carriers. We're building more carriers than anyone else, except possibly the states. But it's basically carriers and maybe to a certain extent submarines where they haven't gone full bore. But I think given the way that the Chinese surface fleet has developed, I think the Chinese are following pretty much the same route that they have with their surface fleet. Because if you remember a lot of their surface ships 20 or so years ago give or take a decade they were building small batches two three four ships something like that and then going okay that works that doesn't work this can be improved then the next batch would be an incremental improvement and so on and so forth mm. and then once they've got up to speed and they think okay we're happy with this now their mass producing surface warships and to be fair the size and theoretical on paper capabilities of the new chinese warships that they're building in large numbers is actually quite good you, we can make arguments obviously about whether or not their radar is as good whether or not their missiles are as good etc etc but we all know that all that information is going to be classified and anything publicly released is almost certainly a, a creative lie at best um but when it comes to the carriers they haven't quite got there they've only got Liaoning and Shandong out at the moment and they're going to be trying to um they're going to be tr trying to work out carrier doctrine they're building the type 003s but i suspect that once they have decided this is how our carrier doctrine is going to work in the future that is what they're going to be aiming for um in terms of building however many carriers they plan on building it'll only be once they're happy with the logistics of it and their their way of running them and the submarines as well i think if anything the, the submarines at least again from available reports submarines seem to be the element of naval warfare where china's lagging the most um so 
I suspect, again, you'll probably see them operating small batches of various submarines until they're happy they've got the numbers going at the, and the technology, and then they'll build the mass numbers. And so with the subs and carriers, we're just kind of waiting for them to hit a balance that they're happy with. With the, the regular surface ships, they've already hit that balance. We can now see what they can do. So whilst at the moment the US Navy has a numerical advantage, generally, and also has a um, an advantage in things like carriers and subs, I don't think that's necessarily going to last if we look 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Because the US could ramp up its building, sure, but will it? Um, it might do, it might not do. If it does ramp up its building, will China just ramp its building up even more? We don't know, but there's definitely, I mean, there's already technically a sort of a naval arms race going on, but there's potential for a full-blown naval arms race to break out. And if, if that happens, then something like a Washington Treaty would be the only real way to curtail it if both sides are willing to curtail it, but that requires both sides thinking they've walked away with a victory. And in, in when you looked at the UK and the US, as far as the US was concerned, they could build up to be larger than the Royal Navy. So they were kind of in the China position. They had the capability to build up to the size of the Royal Navy, but they hadn't quite managed it yet. And they were worried about alliances. And the Royal Navy them. still had very large yards and a lot of them and could still produce quite yes. a lot of ships that they wanted to. Yeah, and this is and this is one of the things I keep having to point out to people when it comes to the Washington Treaty, when people say, oh, Britain was broke. No, it's like the Britain was paying down its national debt. And, and so Britain hasn't paid down its national debt for a very long time. Um, but back then, they admittedly, it was the war debt, so, but they were actually reducing it by something along the lines of about two to three times the budget that would be necessary to pay for the G3 and N3 programs combined per year. So the, the money was there mm. in Britain. It was just that the government had other priorities for it, which, funnily enough, looks pretty much like what the US is doing. They've got the money is there in the US to build up their Navy further. But the government has other priorities for some of that money. At which point, the, the I say the Americans they they were looking for basic in in a lot in some ways they were looking for an easy way to get equality with the Royal Navy without having to fight for it. Plus, as you say, the more isolationist new Congress was looking at a way of not having to spend the money for it, and the Royal Navy didn't. Well, the government, I guess, not so much the Royal Navy, but the government didn't want to get into an expensive building race. Um. Uh, with, with the US so there, there may be some level of commonality with the situation the question the two questions really are national pride because the US is quite happy with having been the largest navy on the planet since the end of the second world war are they prepared to give that up the way that the royal navy or again probably more accurately the British government was prepared to give up that in the Washington Treaty. And 
is China willing to curtail its vision to some kind of parity or near parity instead of looking to overtake if they are looking to overtake and let's face it they probably are <laughs> at some point so if if those issues can be overcome then in theory some kind of let's say parity or near parity agreement between china and the us is technically possible but again um what does that look like because it would be very easy i think for china to sit there and go we can we can outbuild you in destroyers and frigates and what are technically cruisers based on their current building rates and based on the us's current building rates so it would be fairly easy for china to hold that hold that card and say to the us well we're prepared to only build up to match your numbers instead of building up to exceed your numbers in a decade's time. Conversely, it would be a very hard sell at the moment for the Chinese to sit there and go, we want to build up to the same size carrier fleet as the US has. That's a card in the US's hands. And then submarines as well, as I say, technology-wise, I mean, the thing is, Technology-wise, at the moment, I don't think the US would be... I mean, they wouldn't like it, but they wouldn't be particularly concerned with China saying, we want to have as many submarines as you, because the Americans will quite happily look at the Virginias and the Seals and go, well, that's perfectly fine. Um, you're just giving us, in very glib terms, you're just giving us more opportunities to rack up kill counts. But a relatively sensible US Navy would be looking at it going, yes, but we can't guarantee that they're going to stay technologically behind us for all that long, at which point having a parity fleet of subs of similar levels of technology would be very dangerous. So I think you've, at that point you've got what you've got one card in the uh, Americans' hands, one card in the Chinese hands, and one and one card that's kind of undecided in the major major branches of naval warfare. We have been, had Jamie has returned. We have though you have though one thing though, and this is the point: the Washington Treaty involves more than two powers. It yes. wasn't a straight up agreement. So it's kind of like the START treaties again. Again, the START treaties were of course mm. based on the, on the interwar naval treaties. In that, you end up with some issues. Do you would Britain accept the same level as France? We have two carriers. They won. Yeah. We just we'll just catch Jamie up with this bit. We'll edit out, obviously. <laughs> uh, but basically, basically, Jamie, we were just discussing about where if, if we're treating it as the U.S. Uh, as the U.S.-U.K. parity issues in the Washington mm. Treaty, China-U.S. parity issues now, and the short summary mm. was kind of that China probably has their like their big card is that they have roughly technological capability with surface warships destroyers carriers as cruisers, escorts and they can just go we're taking this and um we can outbuild you so we play this this is our card to trade to come up we'll just say we'll go to parity whereas the americans currently have the bigger carrier fleet and it'll be very difficult for china to sell any idea that they could build up to parity so that's a card in the americans favor and then the sub card is kind of six or one half dozen of another because current Chinese sub-technological capabilities yeah the Americans probably don't care too much if the Chinese build up to parity with those that with that level of tech 
but at the same time if the chinese catch up to their level of tech then having a parity subfleet is a very big no-no so that's kind of that's a wild card did your internet die it still did i had to um, i had to jump onto my ipad with a uh, a 4g card so oh right fair enough so yeah that's where we are so that's the bit that will be edited out so jamie knows what the hell we're on about uh, you see the thing is i can see there being a, a rationale on both sides for american china to take part i doubt they would especially with the wolf warrior diplomacy that the, the chinese have been pursuing however you then have second tier and third tier well, that's, i just want to jump in quickly there and ask how did they get all the players to the washington naval treaty table or the london treaty table how did they get them there yeah, I mean, very tra- simple. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing was, it was in it was in most people's interests at that point because actually, every everyone was looking at money. The U.S. Congress didn't want to spend it. Britain didn't want to spend it. The Japanese were running at something like thirty percent of their budget going into military spending, most of which was the navy. So they were spending the money, but they really couldn't afford to. Um, and the Italians and the French were looking at the situation and going. We also really don't have the money, so we'd would ra- we would rather agree to something that we can afford rather than feel like we have to keep up with people that we can't actually afford to keep up with. And I mean, e- even though they had special exemptions in that treaty carved out for France and Italy to replace some of their ships early, because they didn't actually ha- this was the thing they negotiated a displacement of dreadnoughts, they didn't actually have the dreadnoughts to make up the displacement so both italy and france ended up keeping a bunch of pre-dreadnoughts and as a result they had these special exemptions carved out that said okay well everyone else has to take a 10-year holiday but you guys can replace some of your older pre-dreadnoughts early they didn't take up those options and in fact both uh, france and italy ended up scrapping ships that took them below their actual treaty displacement max in the late mid to late 20s for eco- economic reasons the italians ditched all their pre-dreadnoughts they ditched dante alairi they gave up on leonardo da vinci so they were left with just four battleships which so, so, so basically what we need in order to get another kind of uh, treaty uh, system off the ground we need another great depression well, it wasn't even the Great Depression at that point. This this was just before. It was it this was a mixture post World War One. Yeah, it was post World War One war exhaustion. Um, but the thing is, I think with the with if you want to call them the, the 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 smaller navies, I actually think there's there's probably for almost all of them, there's probably that that similar kind of France Italy style accommodation, because if you think about the sheer numbers and the sheer tonnage of the US and Chinese navies, you could quite easily turn around to probably all but maybe three or four other navies on the planet and say, by treaty, we will offer you 15, 20% of the displacement of the of these big navies. And that's still going to be two or three times bigger than those navies actually are. So they're going to turn around and say, yeah, okay, fine. We can accept that limit. I mean, that's like, that's like someone coming to me and saying, here, sign this contract that you can, you will only ever uh, uh, own at most three Aston Martins. 
I was just like, great, I don't even have one, so I'll possibly agree to that. But does it give you the capacity for Britain to pay for the New Zealand division? Uh, well, this is the thing, because the, 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 the only navies who, who you can't just kind of bribe away with this insanely optimistic tonnage displacement are probably going to be South Korea, Japan, Russia, Britain, and maybe France. And India. And yeah. Mm. It, India's got a lot of ships, but India, I mean, yeah, I think ambition wise, but India as a navy, although they do obviously have carriers, from what I've seen of them, they they seem at the moment at least to mostly be in a similar position to Brazil, where they have an awful lot of um, ships, but they don't necessarily have um, they don't necessarily have the, the, the displacement like a lot of the brazilian almost all the brazilian surface combatants are sub five thousand tons yeah but the indians want it and the thing yeah. is the indians are competing with the chinese so that would be your second tier group of nations who probably want to say their limit was going to be 50 percent of the great powers again probably never reach it but yeah they'd be important and let's be honest i can't imagine russia setting for settling for less well, I mean, if you if you look at say the U.S. Navy because they're the biggest ones at the moment, it, if you just look at the major surface combatants currently in service, i.e., the Burks and the Ticonderogas, they've got eighty nine plus the Zumwalts, I guess, so ninety one major surface combatants. If they, um, obviously ignoring future Constellation class coming out and definitely ignoring the LCS. <laughs> but, but it's like okay, 90, 91 uh, destroyers and cruisers. How many other navies are there out there in in that second tier batch that we've we've kind of mentioned? Because when I say most most navies with ninety one, you could say say if you said twenty percent, so you said you can have eighteen major surface warships. How many navies out there actually have eighteen frigates, destroyers, or cruisers? Um, it would only be though that kind of small small grouping who even have close to that many or slightly more. But then you go, okay, well, if you if we say you can have let's say forty percent or fifty percent, that's still massively over ambitious for most navies. I mean, the 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 UK is making lots of noise about the moment about having a total combatant force of twenty four. Hmm. Which is about, yeah, it's about thirty percent. But that is thirty percent in terms of hold numbers. That's made up of Type Forty Fives, which okay are prob are in the displacement range of a Ticonderoga or a Burke. But it also includes Type Twenty Sixes, Type Thirty Ones, and Type Thirty Twos, which are all smaller. So in overall tonnage terms, it's going to be a much smaller percentage. And of course, the Washington Treaty worked on tonnage rather than hull numbers. So you, you could easily, I think, hold out to most of even those sort of second-level navies. You could hold out a third tonnage, and that would probably be somewhat over-ambitious for almost all of them. So then, then of course, comes the matter of armament. Mm. So, so how do you classify these things? Cruisers as destroyers, or numbers, or numbers of um, VLS tubes equaling the being the equivalent of the inches of, of guns or you 
Yeah, it's like what's the 16 inch limit equivalent? Yeah. Um, I guess it would have to be 100 and whatever it is VLS tube, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean. And also, you know, the moment you start classifying it, don't take this the wrong way. The Type 83, the moment you define it, what the first rate to use our own thing is going to be, you guarantee the Type 83 will be first rate, the French will be the first rate, everyone will have to build a first rate because they have to. That's why you don't call them first rates, but that's why you have to find something else. <laughs> yeah, no and, matter um, what it is, it's like on the battleships, etc. Uh, you know, everyone had to build a 16-inch battleship. Yes. And let's be honest, with the Britain, when it was to, uh, when you're talking about Nelson and Rodney, yes, it's great having 16-inch battleships there. These beautiful, Churchill viewed them as these great big stalwarts of the battle line that would anchor it in each end. I sit there and go, yeah, that's lovely. But actually, what would be more sensible for Britain probably would have been to focus on 15-inch guns and have them being 15-inch again and then have the King George V being 15-inch again and have standardised in on the 15-inch because of logistics, etc. It would have been sensible. The moment you have an upper limit, people will build to it, no matter what you call it. True. Yeah, and I mean, also, there's also, to be honest, the other thing is the... It, and this gets into the real nitty-gritty detail of it, but you also have to account for the balance of different navies because it's very easy it will be very easy to go okay well the major surface combatants are your frigates destroyers and cruisers well that's great but say look at the russian navy and they've got nearly 100 corvettes with some fairly threatening missiles on the back that's not something i mean that the missile armed corvette is a tool of quite a number of navies they would be particularly happy to give up I have a feeling it's not going to be so much necessarily size or numbers of weapons, but probably capability of weaponry. So if somebody's thinking about, say, arming their ships with I don't know, a, a, a seagoing version of the DF-21, that might be the something that would be curtailed by the treaty or... The problem is once you, especially with the VLS cells these days, if you've got a VLS cell of a certain size, you could you could stick anything from a hypersonic anti-shipping missile to a long-range surface-to-air missile to a cluster of short-range surface-to-air missiles or whatever in it. Um, I, I, I think the actual lim- the limitation on the weaponry and systems is probably going to have to be a lot more basic and a lot looser than it was in the historical tre- Washington Treaty, simply because of the sheer variety of things i think it's going to be more more a case of pretty much the, the ultimate baseline of the washington treaty which was tonnage limits and then people building within those <clears throat> so you kind of have to have a you'd have to have a sub you'd have to address submarines strategic weapons like nukes are addressed by separate treaties and then you'd have to have a kind of a, a small surface combatant uh, zone which would be covering things like your corvettes a major surface combatant zone which is covering your frigates destroyers and cruisers and then a separate bit for carriers and i think i, I think you can probably leave the amphibious stuff and the you can probably leave the amphibious stuff and the um uh support fleet alone 
except that you probably have to put in a certain kind of like how the the treaties did where they put in certain limits of like this is what is defined as a carrier or this is what is defined as a whatever yeah as an amphibious ship to stop and i think probably one of the things that would be on the chopping block would be the lightning carrier version of the america class because if someone agrees to there's only so many carriers they're going to have to define what a carrier is and then it'll be something i imagine it would probably be something along the lines of because it's so easy to make a certain amphibious ships into mini carriers it would probably have to be something along the lines of because you can't render it impossible with in the year of vtol aircraft you can't render it completely impossible for a flight to be used for vtol but you could say that anything that is not a carrier cannot have the kind of heat treatment and deck thickness to withstand the down blast of uh, VTOL aircraft jet engines. Especially what you're trying to say here is, is, is you're trying to um, eliminate the possibilities of a HMS unicorn. Yeah. You try to, but you uh, you just fail to on the certain grounds. Because let's be honest, if we're talking about displacement, are we talking about standard displacement or full load displacement? Do we include, you know, in way, do you include fuel and water in your displacement? And also, if I can carry a lot of water, where do I store that water? Because if I have it running through tubes underneath the deck, then that's going to cool the deck down a, lo- a long way. So I guess I might not need it to say it might not be the same thickness that you normally require for operations, but I can probably get it to operate it. I mean, this is this is what the law. This is Remember, where you get I am the lawyers. British. In. This is where you get the lawyers in to define the exact nature of it. But uh, the, the general principle, I think, would be to eliminate the strike fighter carrying capacity of what are ostensibly otherwise supposed to be landing ships. That'd be the only way for it to control it. Because other, otherwise, effectively, you're not learning from history and you're inviting a Ruggio type problem where the Japanese go, oh, well, you said an aircraft carrier is over 10,000 tons, so we will build an aircraft carrier of 9,999 tons, which technically isn't a carrier, even though it actually is. Um I mean, and, and there's kind of, there is kind of the, the, I guess if you like the, the the precedent for where you draw the line because you've got the the current the Japanese destroyer helicopter destroyer things, and at the moment they can't operate the F-35 because their decks aren't strengthened properly, but they can be and they probably will be, and so that you'll be kind of, if your ship is a has the similar kind of flight deck layout or design as this as the, that class the i think it's the zumos pre-conversion then they are not a carrier and if they have anything like this adaptation so that they can operate f-35s or whatever then it is a carrier and it'll probably be a, a, a legalistically worded version of that where it's kind of effectively if you can operate jet fighters from this it counts as a carrier if you physically can't then it's not you, you realize where this is heading, don't you? Where you're going to do to Australia exactly what you did after World War One. We had to take HMAS Australia, our only battle cruiser, off to the continental shelf and sink it. So we're going to have to do the same thing with HMAS Canberra and HMAS Adelaide. Here. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Well, this is the thing. It, it depends on where where these navies go because a and. A lot, but not all, of the navies that we would put discussing as being potentially on the second tier list. So Russia, um, 
Britain, France, they have carriers. India has carriers. But South Korea doesn't have carriers. But surface combatant-wise, it's on a par with them. Japan currently doesn't have carriers, but could um, in the future. So... I think they're actually in the process. Yeah, they're in the process, but as of of right now, technically, they don't have carriers, although we all know that practically they do. So there are navies at that level that don't have carriers, navies that do. And if you're going to set a kind of second tier, therefore, you are going to have to say, right, for the navies in this tier, you can build up to X amount or X thousand tons of carriers. And given, I'm just thinking, of, of all those nations you're probably looking given that obviously they like to in what historical washington treaty they like to cap things at um they like to cap things at a level that's close to what was already in what was already the case then you're probably looking at either britain or india as the uh, probably britain actually with the queen elizabeth as the ones with the most current carrier tonnage in the second tier so if, about a hundred and sixty thousand tons worth. Uh, I don't know. It's a bit, so, yeah, but if we if we talk if we do kind of a, if we take a kind of standard displacement similar to what the um to what the the Washington Treaty was doing, because yeah, we we will have to eliminate I think food and water and maybe fuel as well in certain respects. But if if you say like the QE is about sixty five thousand tons quote-unquote standard displacement so that's at 130,000 tons yes and then if we wanted to get a, an ocean replacement or something like that maybe yeah maybe stick in another 30 20 to 30,000 on that well if so that's you, an amphibious ship that doesn't count I mean, we were talking yeah about no, if, if, if it we, restricts itself purely to helicopter operations but if we wanted if 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 the royal navy wanted to have a third vessel capable of ferrying out f-35s or something so yeah. just for sake of argument and for round figures so we round up to one hundred fifty thousand tons so then we say right second tier navies can build up to one hundred fifty thousand tons of carriers however we define the carrier no one in no one currently in any of those second tier navies has one hundred fifty thousand tons of carriers so no one can object and say we're scrapping anything but it also effectively puts a limit of about two fleet carriers on the second tier navies and and then you could you could I mean how much are the Canberra's displacing roughly? Oh, she can't remember. About they're about thirty five, aren't they? My, my internet's still down, so I'll have to. Oh yeah, let's have a quick look. So the Canberra class is twenty seven thousand five hundred tons at full load, apparently. Oh. So mm-hmm. so that's just a fraction over fifty thousand. So if you've got if you've got one hundred and fifty thousand as the displacement limit of second tier navies if we said that australia is going to set sit into a third tier of sort of navies big enough to be on the at the negotiating table um then you could say something along the lines of i don't know 65,000 tons yeah 60 60 to 70,000 tons of aviation capable shipping um which again that kind of allows for either two you can either at that yeah actually no if you say 70,000 70, because then that allows these these smaller navies to either have one fleet tier carrier like a QE or two LHD style convert carrier conversion type things like the Canberras or something like the Italians have got with 
with their kind of one big, one small, that kind of thing. But it then means if you if you effectively want to put a capability out there that's the equivalent to a mid mid to large size carrier like a QE or a Kunetsov, if you want to put that capability out there in multiple, i.e., we have the equivalent of, of more than one of those vessels, then you've moved up into the second tier. I think you'd probably don't. I can see the rational agreement, but I can also see where it'd end up, and I reckon it would end up at about 160 and 80 thousand tons. And there's a reason for this is because the British would want to, the capability to build a big one if they wanted it. So they need 30,000 tons of standard. And that would mean that the Australians, if they wanted to build a third ship, could build a third ship. Because everyone would think in terms of multiples of three. Yeah, multiples of three seem to be going out of style these days. They were going out of style when everyone thought they could choose when there'd be mm. wars. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the, the exact numbers. Exact numbers don't really matter too 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 much. But it, it's kind of we we established kind of roughly a ballpark. Um, mm. Because let's face it, even this, even if we say the second tier navies get one hundred and eighty thousand tons, that's less than two Nimitzes. So it's not exact, and unless all of those smaller navies ganged up all at once, it's not exactly like China or America going to be quaking in their boots at, at that level of tonnage. So they that that it, it, it gives plenty of room for the second tier navies to work in, but also doesn't come close to worrying China or the US. So is this actually a way that would that actually be advantageous for Beijing then? for Beijing to get such tonnage um, limitations applied around the world so that you know, the rest of the world can't gang up against it. Yeah, well, this is the thing, because if you look at, if, if America, if we, if let's say, let's say America decides, okay, we want to establish our sort of first tier carrier tonnage limits at um, an optimistic 12 nuclear carrier fleet. And then the Fords are what about? I think the Fords are about one hundred and ten thousand tons. Mm -hmm. um, so you're talking about one point three million tons. Oh they're, no, they're about apparently about one hundred thousand full load. That makes things a lot easier. So you say one hundred twenty thousand tons. Uh, so one hundred thousand tons. So that's a million, one point two million tons of carriers. Mm -hmm. um, and let's say you throw in a little bit <coughs> for refits and stuff. Maybe say one point two five million tons of carriers. If the Chinese are aiming for a parity thing, so they're trading, they're trading their potentially larger surface combatant fleet in exchange for a theoretical upper limit of a similar similar tonnage, and then Beijing's looking at going right, 1.25 million tons of carriers, that is the rough equivalent of 10. If we're going for actually we're going for 180,000 tons on the second tier powers, that's the equivalent of about eight second tier powers. Which, given that we've said the second tier is going to be Russia, South Korea, Japan, France, Britain, and India, there aren't eight second tier powers. True. Yes. So even 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 if you somehow came up with the world's most unlikely alliance of second tier powers, they still actually can't come close to a theoretical Chinese 1.2 million ton carrier fleet. And then you have to sort of split that down a little bit more realistically and look at the fact that just because they have the authority to build it doesn't mean the South Koreans are going to build carriers at all. 
let alone to that displacement, similar with the Japanese. So you probably don't have to worry too much about them. At which point, realistically, at that second tier, Russia's not going to formally side with America anytime soon. India might. France might. Britain probably will. So that's uh, another half a billion tons. So your collective potential maximum allied fleet against you, assuming that India... France and Britain all build up to 180,000 tons and America builds up to its 1.25 million is probably about 1.7 million tons of carriers. And then the Chinese, if if they've also built up to that, um, let's see, uh, that is... About that, that gives the Chinese about 75% of the total theoretical combined carrier tonnage that could come against them, which is about what the ratio that the Japanese thought in battleships they needed. Because they weren't happy with 553 because it was just a bit too little. They wanted one more. So that actually puts the Chinese at roughly the... That, that would actually work for China, I think, because then that, that's assuming that everyone builds their theoretical maximum limits, and China does. China's actually then, with their home field advantage, got about enough to stand up to them. So China would like that, which means probably, as a, and because the U.S. has a smaller, the U.S. has the bigger carrier fleet to start with, and China doesn't, the U.S. will probably try and negotiate them down on that. But that, that, that would be a, a slightly in favour of China starting position. But then it's the question of can China can China trade away its theoretically its theoretical potential for a larger surface fleet to get that? Yes, and will it? You know, will it even come to the table? Would, would it even come to the table? I guess, this, and I guess that's you know, no matter what sort of way you you, you couch it, you, you need that initial incentive to get them there. Hmm. And um, you know, I, I just. I always thought those treaties were quite amazing, simply because they happened. How the hell did yeah. you get? How the hell did you get Japan, United Kingdom, you know, United States, even Germany for the earlier treaties mm. um, on the t- France around the table to agree on these things? Whereas it would be just so easy for them to say, "Now nah, we'll do what we want." Thanks. Yeah. Well, I think I think it requires two things. It requires it requires a budgetary pressure which is ultimately the bottom line, can can we afford not to do this? And it also requires, although it's a bit of a poorly fitting term, but I guess a humanitarian pressure, because especially in the aftermath of World War One, virtually no one wanted to see another great war. And Britain was prepared to give up being the supreme naval power in exchange for being on a par and America was looking at it going, well, we can get to on to parity without conflict. So great. This is a win-win. The question at that point is, um, which was actually, that was a point we were raising while you were, um, uh, horsed internet. <laughs> um, the, it is a question of will, is America willing to potentially give up some or all of its supremacy in exchange for a guarantee of well, at least something of a guarantee of peace and is china willing to do the same 
and what does china want does china act does china want to is china kind of following a turpit style risk fleet scenario or is china looking for parity or is china looking for supremacy because if they're looking at a turpit style risk fleet scenario they'll quite happily come to the table because it would be negotiating for something far beyond their wildest dreams anyway if they're looking for parity they'll probably quite happily come to the table because it's what they want anyway so if they can hold everyone to it and say look you can't say we're being aggressive and expansionist we're just doing what you said we can in the treaty they'll come to the table where they won't come to the table is if they want to be bigger and better than the US Navy if they're aiming to displace the US as the hegemon they won't come to the table because it's curtailing their ambitions unless there's the financial pressure that overrides it I think getting everyone else to fall in line is probably not too difficult because as, as we said just you just sell them on more displacement than they actually have what they haven't got because I was just quickly looking through the list of active surface ships and basically all the navies that we were discussing as the second tier in terms of major surface combatants they're all in the 20s with the sole exception of Japan which just has a ridiculous number for whatever reason um but even though everyone's in the 20s you've got this range of like 4,000 tonners to 10,000 tonners and of course the Kirovs in the case of the um Russians whereas the the capabilities you'd be measuring against which is basically going to be the Americans pretty much the Burks and the Ticonderogas are all in that nine to ten thousand ton plus or minus a bit variance range so um, it's not just it's not just a case of sort of 25 percent 25 30 percent of whole numbers it's a case of 25 30 percent of whole numbers translated into displacement it's still actually probably a much higher displacement limit than any of those second tier navies actually has or is likely to have with the possible exception of Japan who might be butting up against and the point you might get to in that's way because if you're going to do the carrier percentage by giving Britain enough so let's say 180,000 tons I think was what we were going with so Britain could theoretically build a third if it wanted to so probably actually that would be 195,000 tons but we'll leave that to one side let's go 180,000 tons if you were going with a tonnage of the surface combatants, you'd probably have to go with the Japanese tonnage surface combatants and work that one out. And the thing is, what you might end up with doing is with the smaller nations who suddenly are in the second tier going, hang on, they've, they've, they've got more of this to fill than we have. Uh, we'd better build some more ships. You might end up with a naval race, but rather than being between the major powers, between this, uh, the second tier and possibly even with the third tier going uh, we suddenly have got because suddenly there would be for the politicians there'd be a problem in that they could go well we only need this many this ships you know we're fine we're funding enough and then we would turn around and go yeah but we're the same tier as them and they have a lot more ships so why do they need more than we do and they'll go uh, uh, so you actually could end up with a naval race being fostered between all the lower powers, which actually to an extent did happen with the Washington and London treaties, because they're having to build, they want to build up to their tonnage. They want to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> and, you know, at the moment, without a treaty, they can all claim uh, well, it's for our independent <clears throat> national need. 
It's what we need. Well, the, 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 weird, the weird thing at the moment, I just did a, a quick bit of calculation. Um, the Japanese total tonnage comes in. At, it's not an exact figure because I've averaged out the displacement of their smaller destroyers um, that aren't the Congos, Otagos and Myers. Um, but it looks like, roughly speaking, the Japanese um, tonnage displacement for their frigates, destroyer escorts and destroyers comes in at about 275,000 tons. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, if you took, if you effectively actually really enough, take the treaty cruiser 10,000 ton displacement, which is, okay, fractionally more than a Burke, but it's much easier to calculate. Um, if we if we ignore the slight variances for the Burks, Ticonderogas and Zumwalts, you're effectively looking at about 900 or just over 900,000 tonnes displacement of US major surface combatants um, at the moment. Yeah. And if you then said, okay, well, one third of that, um, that comes in at 270,000 tonnes, which is near enough near enough this makes no difference given that that's both that's both kind of loose averages that's about the displacement of the japanese navy so you could you could whatever you fix the u.s surface combatant force at, and let's say it's a million let's say you say a million tons to give them a little bit of headroom yeah because some of the like, like large surface combatant and things if you say a million tons and say a third of that, and so you give all the second tier navies three hundred thousand tons of major surface combatants, the Japanese have a bit of room to play with. They can decommission some of their smaller and older ships if they need a little bit more tonnage if they want, and everybody else is going to be dancing around in the streets happy days because they're not oh. anywhere close to that. <laughs> yes, and just think about it: the Royal Navy going, yeah, you know, oh, sir, we we don't have anywhere near our three hundred thousand ton limit. Mr. <laughs> we need to fix this. We need to fix this. Mind you, knowing knowing the government, the way they added pensions in to try and claim they were spending more than two percent of GDP on on defence, even though the rules actually explicitly say not to do that. Um, knowing the navy, they well not the navy, the government. The government will probably try and rope in HMS Victory and HMS, <laughs> and HMS Warrior into. It's like no, no, they're, they're, we'll we'll recommission Warrior and. And Belfast, and Victory's already in commission, so that adds what another twenty thousand tons to our to our theoretical in-service capability. Yeah, theoretically, but that's still there'll still be a lot of building but, going on. But there is one uh, there is one uh, other aspect to a uh, treaty system: is that you're going to need inspectors, and um, I propose that inspectors should be teams made up of engineers and naval historians. Mm-hmm. Going out looking for all those little tricks. <laughs> Let, so, yeah. how much water are you using as armour on this ship? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can, I can, I can just imagine the whole diplomatic uh, shenanigans like there have been with uh, the various nuclear inspectors and the, you know, the overflight rights and things that have been going on in recent decades. Oh, that'd be fun. That would be fun. But it could be employment. Mm. Yes, um, yeah. me and Drac could have a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. In, I think it's entirely doable. And this is this is one of the things that they were looking to be very very tight with the Washington Treaty with because of budgets and everything, and and trying to cap right at just at the top of everyone's capability. That's why the ten thousand ton eight inch cruiser limit came in because that's basically what everyone was built was building anyway. Um, and then they had to build in these extra 
considerations for things like um yeah anti-aircraft and anti-submarine upgrades but i think this is the thing because you've got this absolutely colossal titan that is the u.s navy and china trying to compete with it you can offer some what on paper look like massive massively smaller amounts so yeah it's like let uh 20 percent of u.s carrier tonnage displacement and 30 percent of surface warfare displacement to the second tier powers and it, it looks like an absolutely piddly amount but it's still massively in excess of what any one of what any of those second tier powers actually have because yeah japan will be just touching their limit on the surface but they don't have any carriers and when they complete their conversions they're still not going to be anywhere close to 180 200 000 tons of carriers and if britain, you will gave... be, britain will yeah. be the closest but let's face it, our current surface fleet is nowhere close to 300,000 tons. I just did the quick math for the Russians. The Russians are about 240. Um, uh, obviously, the Corvettes and stuff are another matter. But the Russians, Russians, including the Kirovs, are about 240 in surface. So they've got plenty of headroom to play around with if they've got a 300,000 limit. Do you so, think if with the, the 200,000 limit, and I'm just mm, working this out now, do you imagine that Britain would end up ordering a third aircraft carrier to fill up to its 200,000 ton limit? I think, I think the Royal Navy would like to. Whether or not the government <laughs> will do so is another matter entirely. Well, uh, they, they won't do so until they go, until the Royal Navy is able to go, well, India has built up to its 200,000 ton limit, and Japan is building up to its 200,000 ton limit, and Russia is talking about it, and France is talking about it. Yeah. Go, <laughs> this is where the financial we've been outmaneuvered again. Pester power. Pester yeah, this, power. Is, this is where yeah. this is where the um this is where the whole um the the, the whole big budgetary consideration comes into play because if you it, I think this is the thing if you if you make it just that little bit close enough like I said like people building the Hawkins and the Pensacolas and the Furtakas. By making that, I think the, the the failing there was by making the limit just above what you had, it meant everyone went, mm, it, we, we could get something a bit more powerful and it's not going to cost us too much more, so we will. And then everyone was there. Whereas if you aim, aim with this sort of a fair chunk above it, it's not a case of, it's not a case of someone like, say, if... Um, I don't know, because obviously this treaty would take years to negotiate, but let's say for sake of argument that the Queen Elizabeth had come into service 10, 15 years earlier, and, and then by the treaty being concluded in the 2030 or something, they were looking at maybe thinking about replacing them in the next 5, 10 years at that point. Um, if the treaty limit said you can have 150,000 tonnes of carriers then it'd be very easy for someone to look at the Queen Elizabeth at, say, 60 to 65,000 tonnes and go, well, if, we, if we've got this allowance, we might as well go for 75 and replace them like for like with two slightly larger 75,000 tonnes, and that'll be fine. Um, and you can, you can kind of see like oh yeah, bigger, more volume, more capability, all those kind of arguments. And it's not going to cost too much more. Whereas if you say no, two hundred thousand tons, and you're in that same situation, then you're going to be looking at it as either, oh, are we going to are we going to skip from the Queen Elizabeth up to a Ford-sized carrier? That's a big step, or 
do we um, obviously do we actually build the three carriers we paid for um instead of uh two but do we have three ships in service instead of two that's also quite a big step um so it it, it, it i think it would probably serve as something of a reality check against that kind of everyone building up to the limits because it would require such a significantly greater investment again Drac, you're being wonderful, but you're applying logic to what the politics and passion and political electioneering. It's not so much logic, it's, it's more just the cold, hard cash baseline of can't do you actually have the money to afford it? Uh, yes, there will be jobs in yards, those will be votes at the general election, there'll be national pride on the vote. So, this, this, this is a good segue to the next part of yeah. the podcast. Although I, yeah. I, I, I will just finalise that by saying those are all very good points. It's never stopped the British government and their defence white papers before. <laughs> <laughs> You'd say that, but then if we go back to the treaty era, when they were talking about trying to cut cruiser construction, it was very easy for the British uh, for the Royal Navy and Admiralty to say, but look at the Americans, look at the Italians, look at the French. And yeah. it provided a ready... It, it, it's going to sound strange. The trouble with the, with the treaty systems, once you have the contract in place, it provides a framework for comparison. Yes. Which makes which, it hilarious far enough more is what we were talking about like, with our, our age of sale rating system. So now I've got yes. two papers to write. I've got to finish my <laughs> rating system and I've now got to write the outline of a theoretical Washington Naval Treaty <laughs> Mark II to send yes. off. Right. Easy. Segways. <laughs> let's seg let us segue off a cliff. Uh, well, that pretty much is because our next one is defence in a competitive age. The Ministry of Defence's paper, which came out as their response to the ISR, ISDR. And it's 76 pages long, but there is a lot of white space in here. And I have sent it through to my illustrious colleagues. We have each what, had a when? copy. Huh? When? It was, um, I emailed it to you yesterday. Oh, okay. Whoops. We do so much prep for these th these talks, we really do. <laughs> um, one of the things that sort of uh, they have committed to spending 188 billion on defence over the coming four years, which sounds really like an amazing figure until you work out that that means they are spending 47 billion a year. Which is a lot of money, yes, but it it doesn't actually add up to always that much when you consider that they include things like pensions, etc. There is a lovely picture of HMS Queen Elizabeth, I think, in it, um, which is always nice to have. There's the most wonderful graphic of the fret, which actually doesn't tell you anything. It looks cool. But it has no actual ability to tell you anything. And then you I didn't know you guys own Sydney. Hmm? Didn't know you guys own Sydney. Your global foundation. Hmm. Oh. I mean, just would you like those... us to own Sydney? <laughs> yeah, you can have it. Any time. You can take it. Take it. Um, no, it's, it's one of those wonderful um, network maps hmm. showing yeah. showing your uh, British defence staffs. Their locations. Anyway, yes. 
our British defence staffs, our, our global locations and where we are around the world. And you sit there and look at that map and go, ah, there is a defence staff. There is a net defence attaché network. There is the hubs, bases and large training areas. And the fact that I think the lovely um, oh, Sydney has both uh, a training area and a defence staff there. Um, there are a lot of defence attaches wandering around the world, which is always nice to know. And there is a lot of stuff going on, which is always nice to know. But one of the things I did notice reading through this is it's very light in terms of actual numbers of units. Yes, it, it looks very, it looks like standard political brochure to me. I'm afraid to say. Yeah, just from scanning through everything. If you consider the protecting our homeland, apparently two tight, two astute class submarines, and I'm not sure whether they are Type 23 frigates, Type 31, Type 26 frigates, but there is definitely at least three patrol vessels and at least three frigates also tied to that. Plus a minesweeping, a couple of minesweeping vessels, plus a whole load of Eurofighters, etc., in protecting our homeland. And I'm sitting there going, so if you're deploy, if you're assigning two active submarines to protecting the UK, um, I, 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 I don't want to cause you upset here, but if you're assigning two active submarines, there aren't that many submarines in the Royal Navy. There are like seven attack subs. Yeah, this is a pretty graphic. They don't mean mean anything, because if you if you, if you count the uh, numbers of uh, items in the graphic, um, you've pretty much got more AWACs there than you're actually going to be buying. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. you've got at least two AWACs there, and we're only yeah, buying three. Which means there's only ever going to be one available at any time. So. Yeah. <laughs> which is, so yeah, yeah, you can't really you can't believe the pretty pictures. They're there for the politicians to. To sit back and go, oh, that looks cool. There are lots of pretty pictures here. Mm. One but of the yes. interesting things we are talking about, though, is the Type 83. That has caused us a lot of joy to talk about the Type 83. And really, I'm starting to think that this is... And this is going to sound strange. So, Britain is announced it's building Type 31, which is going to be your forward-deployed present ship. It's going to build a Type 32, which is going to be a Type 31, which is basically orientated around supporting mines, autonomous minesweeping units. And it's now talking about the Type 83, which, and I don't want to take uh, hurt too many people here, but let me explain something to you very, very softly. For all those who are producing graphics based around the Type 26 or Type 31 and saying that will be the model for the Type 83, I don't want to upset you, but those ships wander in at a maximum of about 8,000 to 10,000 tonnes in their hull design. Type 83, if you go by what it's being listed as being capable of and being not basically a successor in a way to the Type 82, which was HMS Bristol, and you compare her to the Type 42s, and then you think the Type 45s, and you take that and turn it into a likely size for a Type equivalent 83, 
you get around about 14,000 tons. Now, then you start thinking this is going to be built in the late, well, 2030s. So in about 15, 16 years time, and you suddenly get the idea that it's probably going to be in the region of 16 to 18,000 tons. And as much I get the cruiser, I've been asking everyone to build for how long? Yes, one of the um, things I will say is the one of the things that means is you cannot stretch a freaking hull from 8,000 to 18,000 tons, it just doesn't work. It's going to be a new hull. I think the point is, is that, or a Zumwalt hull, you could do it with a Zumwalt hull. The point is, is that given the airy fairy nature of this publication, why would you? spend money on a graphic designer designing a conceptual ship when that ship isn't ever likely to be built anyway. I mean, well, I mean, what, what are the chances of this, this Type 80, whatever it is, 23, actually turning up? Seriously. Well, I think as a, as a replacement for the Type 45, I was, I was discussing this with Dr. Clark earlier in the week, I think it actually has a certain amount of legs to it because... In, in a shocking move, and I, I still have to pinch myself every few days to make sure I am actually living in this timeline, the government does actually seem to be trying to spend more money on the Royal Navy in the forthcoming years than it has in previous years, which is a situation I don't think I've ever had in my lifetime. I think literally the last time this happened was just after the Falklands War, and that was mainly because they were having to replace the ships that had gotten sunk. Um but if they are actually legitimately serious about trying to beef the Royal Navy up, a large cruiser Type 83 as a replacement for the Type 45s, it makes a certain amount of sense in terms of a balance of cost versus capability. Because a Type 83 that's 60, 80% dis greater displacement than a Type 45 isn't going to cost 60 to 80%. Uh, as much it might cost actually a bit more but if if you're if you're looking at alternatives if you take let's say 16,000 tons so not quite but let, let's say for sake of argument about double the type 45's displacement so if you're doing a tonnage re tonnage style replacement of that sort you could either do a like-for-like -like type 83 is type 45 so six or maybe one or two more or you could do twice as many type 45 successors are type 46 or type 47 but when you compare the two if you if your if your choice of expanding the royal navy is 12 type 46s or six type 83s you're building twice as many smaller uh, anti-air warfare destroyers will cost more and you'll still have to build anti-submarine escorts as well because they can only do one thing well um then you're also going to have a, a, a dozen type 46s will have a greater crew complement than half a dozen type 83s so they'll be manning costs there'll be greater maintenance costs because if you've got two or three of them in dock undergoing refit any one time that's going to be costing more than having one slightly larger ship in dock um and actually capability wise an individual type 83 would probably be more capable than a theoretical type 45 successor because a type 45 successor if they go with the same kind of layout single 48 cell vls 
Well, at 16,000 tons, I know we've talked about the Sejong the Great before. The Sejong the Great carries three, maybe maybe even four times as many missiles, depending on what exact loadout you're using on both ships, compared to a Type 45. And the Sejong the Great is still about 4,000 tons short of a theoretical Type 83. So a Type 83 could quite easily carry um, four three well, quite easily carry three 48 cell vls plus maybe a 16 cell mark 41 somewhere and could conceivably carry four uh 48 cells if they really wanted to push the boat out which means that actually your type 83 is going to be more capable than a pair of type 45 successes the only thing a, a theoretical type 46 ha has over the um, type 83 would be that if you've got 12 holes rather than six you can be in twice as many places but in all other respects, six Type 83s would give you more capability um, for less cost. So if, if we're being somewhat realistic about the British government, if they're going to say we, we if, if they say we definitely want to increase the power of the Royal Navy, but in classic British politician fashion, yeah, but we don't actually really want to pay for it. If your options to do that are a dozen Type 46s or half a dozen Type 83s, the Type 83s actually make more sense, which is what makes me edge slightly to more, more towards them being realistic, because although I, I really like and would really like to see half a dozen or eight or whatever big 16,000 tonne of Type 83 cruisers, it's also one of the very, very strange coincidences where my my thinking and what i want to see roughly coincides with what a british government that's obsessed with looking good and not paying the bill for it actually would want which so you're clearly coming you're clearly coming down on the side of the type 83 being a first rate as opposed to an ego ship yes yes yeah. i mean this is I'm, I'm trying to balance the let's face it it's political speaks are probably slightly overblown we want to be the, the the sort of the next thing next best thing to the u.s navy which is what the government's trying to sell balanced with these people won't pay for it and the type 83 seems to have be, be in that kind of nice middle ground as long as the navy can sell it to them properly let's let's just put it into perspective here so the glossy brochure document mentions the type 83 once once only and the sentence is the concept and assessment phase for our new Type 83 destroyer, which will begin to replace our Type 45 destroyers in the late 2030s. So it's very, very, very firmly in the realm of dreamware at this stage. Yeah, but we can dream. But leaving that to one side, it's not actually in as much dreamware as it might sound. And the reason I say this is because of some of the random conversations I've been having this week, and I do enjoy it when I end up having these random conversations with people. But basically, there is another program which is going on at the same point to provide a large surface combatant. Which is also currently billed as a destroyer. And it's, of course, the Americans looking at their next generation large surface combatant, which will be about a similar time. And the Americans want a reason to try and introduce a lot leaner manning in their ships. And the British don't really want to have to pay for everything. And we have a track record with the Horizon Frigate of not having a good time with a joint project. But with the Americans, 
it might just work if it happens. Because mm. whilst the American, uh, what do the British bring to the party? The British bring a lot of capability in terms of designing ships with a lot less crew than the Americans need, which the Americans want. The Americans bring to the party a Zumwalt-class hull, because you don't need to redevelop the wheel. You've got the hull which will work. You can modify it up, it will work. And a lot of weapons development programs and a lot of uh, various systems like that. The British bring a very good command and control system. The British bring a very good radar system and radar base to, to it. Do they, do, they have, do they have a history of actually working with... Uh, shall we say, co-developers? Well, actually, the Americans and the British, if anyone has a history of working together, it probably is the Americans and British. And if you think about the amount of things we did with USS Robin and we're doing currently, where a US Marine Corps fighter squadron is operating off HMS Queen Elizabeth for the major deployment and all these things, possibly they are the only navies in the world which could do this. The only reason why I raise it is that um, you know, Australia has this little um, <coughs> submarine project going on at the moment with, uh, in cooperation with France. <clears throat> Just a little submarine problem go situation going on with France, where you fell for the French uh, line of, we will build everything in France. In, I mean, in Australia. In Australia. We honestly, we'll build everything in Australia. Shh, they didn't hear me. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. This no, it's not the, just that. It's also actually getting a submarine that works. I think that's uh, I think that's the main thing everyone's panicking about now. But look at the Type Twenty Six program. That's a world leading program which we basically developed and then sold to the Canadians and Australians once we've got well, it work. Aren't the Canadians having second thoughts? No, the Canadians are still building it. There's really no other option. The, the Canadians keep talking about having second thoughts, but that's mostly because they're looking at the cost of actually having to build their industry because they decided they want to build it in us in Canada. And everyone's going, well, yes, that, that it's going to cost money. You're going to have to build and develop whole new yards because you haven't been building anything. It's not the actual ships which are going to cost the money. It's the program. You know, it, it's like when people put the program in, you know, those double commas speech marks going on and going, it's the program which is going to cost money. In other words, we're going to have to pay for a whole lot of infrastructure which we haven't been paying for for years. If we'd maintained it rather than uh, rather than letting it go to pot, we would actually be costing us a lot in, less. In Australian politics speak at the moment, it's called a premium. You pay yeah. that premium to get the infrastructure to build or contribute towards your projects. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to follow how things pan out in the, with Canada. The Canadians then. keep comparing their programs to the Americans south of the border, and they seem to forget one thing. The Americans are always building something, which means it keeps the premium down nice and low. Even they have troubles, though, but they're still always building something. The Canadians aren't. Definitely not. Yes. All right. Well, so anything else come out of that for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where I think you it's very optimistic and it'd be wonderful if it all happened that way. Um, 
Oh, it's overwhelmingly optimistic, but, especially if you're in the yeah. army, because none of that's going to come into a being, but, being. Yeah, it's like, but but you you have to temper that with the realism of the fact that every virtually every single government has come in with big grandiose promises and then cut things massively um to the, to the point of almost ridiculousness so the, the the only the only thing is it's like it's it feels to me almost like a hostage negotiation um to be fair most most uk government documents when it comes to the royal navy feel like hostage negotiations um you're not quite the, sure who's the hostage of who though <laughs> yeah but it's it, it's kind of it's aiming high enough that if you get the classic, like you have with the Type 45s, originally supposed to be 12, then 8, then 6, and the Type 26s was supposed to be 2 dozen, then 18, then 12, um, and so forth. Now 8. And now 8. It's that it, it's a high enough ambition that if, if you, we only go through, say, two rounds of downsizing it in subsequent governments, we might still end up with something vaguely acceptable. Um, whereas one, whereas one, the one type 83 to um, tie up in Portsmouth and call a training ship yeah it's, <laughs> it's, I, it's, I, I understand that role recently became vacant <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean this is this is the thing of um, if you've got I think one of the problems with all these other previous reviews apart from the fact that they're all blatantly political lies is that most of the others they they try to sell it as it's an incremental increase in power and we're honestly not lying to you governor this time but because it's just a slight increase comparatively like like for like type 42 for five type 45 and therefore we are going to stick to it we absolute promise pinky swear pretty please and all of that and then of course because they're politicians they turn around and lie and cut everything but because they didn't start out high enough you actually ended up with a net reduction in capability at least, at least if they're shooting for the moon this time, they've got a fair bit to cut down before they actually start going into negative reductions in capability again. And, and the thing is, we now it. have a small problem in that it's going to sound strange, but the shipbuilding constituencies are now in play politically again. Because a couple of years ago, there was a general election and what was it, they call it the Red Wall crumbled. And all these constituencies, which have been reliably solidly Labour, the Labour thought were in their back pocket forever, turn Conservative. And A, that's meant the Conservatives want to keep hold of these constituencies, which is probably driving a lot of their interest in terms of things and might well be why the Army is again suffering versus the Navy and the Air Force, because the Navy and Air Force equipment is built vast majority in the UK. Uh, the army has been having issues with various things and they are trying to get the other factories working, but they're not doing that great. Whose idea was it to sell off all the tank construction and, and equipment anyway? Uh, I think that was, I, I'm not sure whether that was Labour in 1998 or the Conservatives in 1995. One of the two. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things you always have to remember about, about when, when, it, comes, when it comes to defence there is no political party of defense there's just no. different flavors of lies yeah. i was just going to say you know, it, I, I, it was just so strange because the, you know the uk had a reputation for being right up there with mm. armor construction yeah and to, to you know basically to get rid of your various 
key ordnance uh, development units and things. Yeah. Just, yeah. The the fundamental problem, I think, has been not just that general generally governments are full of politicians and therefore full of liars, out for their own interests, but also that for a fairly long time, the post of defence secretary has not been seen as one of the prime positions. Everyone wants to be home secretary or justice secretary or for some bizarre reason even these days environment secretary but the, the although the secretary of defense is or defense minister is what it should be one of the top tier posts politically it's not treated as that politically it's treated as either something you put a second tier minister on or it's some or it's a place that a minister goes to be before going on to one of the quote unquote proper ministries and with a few exceptions here and there and this is the annoying thing there have been a few exceptions where there have been some pretty good defense ministers but because they're pretty good defense ministers they actually stand up and start telling the politicians what they don't want to hear which means they don't last very long in the next cabinet reshuffle it's like oh no but this person is saying awkward things we don't like them here have um have uh, the home office job and shut up <laughs> um or something similar to that which with yeah and i think as a result you end up with you get as i say you get some good defense ministers but you get some defense ministers who really shouldn't ever ever been let near a political position of power let alone a ministry position <laughs> well one thing you might want to start uh, mentioning is just you know all the flow-on effects of having a type 83 Mm. You might be able to get some of that, um, you know, yeah. uh, get some of that silverware um, made for the uh, <coughs> for the dining yeah. room. You can you can you well, can get you, yeah. you can get the old yeah. um, get your various uh, uh, what would you call it um, chinaware mm. industries the, the, up and running. You can get you just the, have to break out <laughs> some of the some of the yeah get get some work in historical archiving but just breaking out, out the warehouses of stuff the royal navy's looted over time and just stored in various back pockets but um don't but no, joke I think that, about that there are whole warehouses in various naval yards which frankly we do not want to open and there's at least two hangers in cold rows it's all right just follow just you just follow the same the same procedure as a guy i know in the army has, has done on a few occasions where they found slightly politically awkward items of loot in their regimental barracks you just drive a drive a bl unmarked van up to the british museum at like three o'clock in the morning <laughs> drop it off and and staple a parachute regiment calling card to the top <laughs> um but no it, it, it also says i think part of the problem is with the because you end up with this series of defense ministers who really really shouldn't have been in any kind of position of that side you end up with um phases at the mod which are almost like hilariously enough given the current circumstances like when ursula van der leyen was in charge of the german defense ministry and decided that you know spares aren't a thing that you need in peacetime um people who are just legitimately kind of dropped on the head at birth repeatedly but and I think that that's those are the kind of that when you get those kinds of people in as defense minister, that's when you see stuff like, oh, yeah, well, we don't need tank manufacturing capability. There's never going to be another war. This is pointless. We can sell it off. And if we need to uh, build tanks in the future, we can just buy them from someone else or we can just reopen the tank factory because that's easy. 
One, so one of the few things that the I mean, for all the fact that there's like more more M1s parked in the desert that have never seen U.S. Army service than I think most other countries have had tanks in their entire history. Um, one of the few things they get right is they realize if they shut that tank factory down, they will lose a lot of institutional knowledge about how to build tanks. And so they just keep building the, the, the American Desert Army <laughs> for no reason other than just to keep that factory open, even though it has no other at this point until they bring out like a whatever they're going to an M2 or something. No, that's the Bradley. What are they going to call their next tank? I don't know. The, name the M3, the M4. The oh, no, not the M4, the, the, M, the, the M4, the American M4 tank. That means it's only it's limited to 50 miles an hour and is permanently closed for upgrading to smart systems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. And also it bleeds to like Swindon, so. As I said, my hope is not based on a love of the fence. My hope is based on a love of getting elected. Mm. And well, if, if they, I think if they keep in, a, if they keep like recently, they've had defence ministers who are either ex-military, yeah, usually ex-military or have some military experience. Um, that's a slightly better move. Again, you're saying things that makes me slightly op more optimistic in the fact that basically a few of the defence ministers we've had recently have actually been somewhat qualified for the job. <laughs> I was, was, was going to say, you know, let's, let's hope they haven't been listening to bilge pumps because uh, otherwise your Type 83 will come equipped with four um, ballrooms instead of VLS systems. Mm. Hey! Not the, just, but not four ballrooms. One super-sized ballroom. It, it, it's it. We call it that. We call it the the dual per the dual purpose storage and conference suite. It's actually the <laughs> helicopter hangar. It's just we replaced the. We made it very tall and replaced the overhead lighting with chandeliers. And you put parquetry on the floor. Yeah, and it, it, that's fine as long as you're using as long as you're using uh, helicopters with wheels, not skids, and you have. Um, and you have someone with a with a good can of polish every every time you deploy a, deploy a helicopter. It's honestly fine. But the main problem you'd have is if you put up the tapestries and wall paintings. You know what the fleet air arm officers are like. They don't last in, um, shall we say, polite company display capabilities for very long. Uh, yeah. oh. All right. Well, where are we at? We're I at one a minute, one hour, one minute, one hour and thirty-three. So I think we'll call that enough of that. I think yeah. we probably tortured our sixty thousand odd listeners enough. But to a specific listener, I want to say hello. We have one listener in the country of Caracal. Mm. One so a regular, regular listener, apparently. We have a very regular listener. They listen every week, so thank you. And we have another listener in Serbia who listens every week, so thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Turks and Caicos Islands, thank you. Uh, Jamaica, Montenegro and Gibraltar all have one listener each, so hello, thank you. Um, I'm not sure how, but we are now up to two listeners in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. So I'm hoping we have one in Trinidad and one in Tobago. <laughs> <laughs> Balance is therefore maintained. Yeah. <clears throat> and what I still can't understand is why the hell the Yanks listen to us. Yeah, we we, we have a lot of you. Uh, thank you to the thirty three thousand Americans who seem to tune in on a regular basis. <laughs> Love you very very much. And uh, yes, I'm sure that Britain still wants you back. Yeah. 
we take bits. I, I, I think I think this is the way for the, the neo-British empire to establish, to establish itself. We just go around to various countries and say, what are the bits you really don't like? <laughs> well, we, we'll, we'll take, so it's like we could take Florida. I'm fairly sure we could take Florida off the States without much complaint. We could have Sydney off of Australia. Um, I mean, half of New Zealand, let's have the South Island without too much issue. Um, yeah, there, there are places. I mean, I, I don't think we want particularly want the um Quebec back to be perfectly honest, even though most of Canada would be happy to let us have it. But we've got we've got enough French speaking people nearby already. Thank you. That that quota is full. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. I'll catch you next week. All right, there you go. See you later. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.